Welcome to the Sovereign Grace Church Sermons Podcast. Enjoy the sermon by Pastor Jason. Sovereign Grace Church is a Bible-based, gospel-centered church. Please enjoy. All right, the, um, the text that we're going to cover today, if we were just reading through and not digging in, we might would think that this is just another narrative of a of an interaction between Jesus and someone else, um, and we might just kind of gloss over it as something not that important. It's just a healing, and Jesus does that all the time. But I think that there's much more going on that we need to dig into in this text because there's some an important theme that comes through this text that if we would be honest with ourselves and with God, we will see something amazing within this text and what Jesus has done. So let's go to the text. Now hear the infallible inspired word of God, John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. He asked them the hour when he began to get better. They said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. Now this, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word, for the power in it, for your word is what you have spoken to us. And we thank you that it is contained in this Bible that we can get our hands on, that reformers died for, that men throughout history have died to, to, to hold in their hands and to make sure that we can have. God, we are so thankful that we have your word contained in this, in this, in this book. God, help us to open our hearts and minds to what you have to say to us. God, remove the veil that we can see Jesus clearly revealed. And God, we just ask that you would illuminate the path for us through the power of the Holy Spirit working in our minds and hearts to help us to learn and retain and use this again. Sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth in Christ's name. Amen. So, I want us to break this down so that we can see the awesome theme that's in this text. First, though, let's address something important here. In the very beginning of the text, verses 43 through 45. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. 
For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So, I don't know if you guys know this, but there are some skeptics of the Bible. And one of the things that they all say is something that you have heard probably a hundred times in your life from people. The Bible is full of contradictions. How many have heard that? I've heard that. Gosh, I've heard it. So like a bunch of birds squawking all the same song, they say there's a Bible is full of contradictions. In Sproul's commentary, he recounts an interaction. He had a friend, had with a friend who came into college as an Orthodox believer. And by his fourth year, he was a skeptic of the Bible because he listened to what the professors were saying. So in the story, he uh, his friend is talking to him about his skepticism of the Bible. And R.C. Sproul says, well, personally... I still believe it's the truth. I still I don't believe that there's a bunch of contradictions in the Bible. And his friend said, it's full of contradictions. He said, okay, if it's full of contradictions, then by tomorrow at lunch, I want you to have 50 of them written down and let's look at them. Let's go through it. And he said, the way he described it in his commentary is his friend came in to lunch, disheveled looking, like he hadn't had any sleep. He said, all right, I've looked through it and looked through it and looked through it. And I've even had another skeptic friend help me. And I've got 30. We found 30. And R.C. said, okay, 30's fine. Let's go through 30. And he said they sat down and they went through all 30 of the contradictions. And they used hermeneutics. And they used history. And they used grammar. And one by one, all of those contradictions were satisfied, not to R.C.'s standard, but to his skeptical friend's standard. And this actual passage is one of the contradictions that they settled. And he told R.C., he said, wow, you did a lot of gymnastics to get that thing settled. He said, yeah, I did. The word is true. It's not a contradiction. It doesn't matter what kind of gymnastics you got to do to understand what, what is being said here. It's not a contradiction. So the word is not contradictory. And let's look at what this means. See, it says here that he departed for Galilee, and Jesus himself had said that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So in this case, skeptics say that there are contradictions because Jesus was supposedly from Nazareth in Galilee. And he was. He was from Galilee. Yet they look at the fact that he was... Uh, welcomed by the Galileans. Well, they think it's as if John had contradicted himself in two sentences, like he had forgotten from one sentence to the other what was going on. But there's been a couple people try to settle this. One, one says, well, technically Jesus is from Judea because he was born in Bethlehem, and Bethlehem is in Judea. But that doesn't hold water because the Bible is clear that Jesus is from Nazareth. He is always called Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus of Bethlehem, right? So we know he's from that. So that that let's not let's not try and uh, 
twist something to, to make it fit us. Let's actually look at this. Is this a contradiction? John says a prophet has no honor in his home is something that Jesus said. And Jesus is technically home in Galilee, right? Well, I think R.C. gives a, a pretty good bit of perspective here. Let's look at the surrounding words in the text. It's good hermeneutics to do that. Let's keep the text in context. These Galileans, what does it say about them? They welcomed him. Why? Having seen all that he had done at Jerusalem at the feast. They saw him turn water into wine. They saw him do awesome things in, in the, at the feast. So were they welcoming him as a prophet? No, they weren't welcoming him as a prophet. We're fixing to see that these Galileans welcomed him because he did awesome stuff. And the next interaction that we're going to see kind of points to the motivation behind that good reception. They were wanting the stuff. They were following after the signs and the wonders. Let's draw a contrast that we need to see here, okay? Because we need to understand why John would put that and see that the Galileans welcomed him because of what he had done. Jesus was just leaving Samaria after having stayed there for a few days. He stayed with that group of people who were considered worse than just Gentiles by the Jews because they had mixed Jews and Gentiles. So they were even worse than the regular old Gentiles. He preached the gospel to them. And they believed in him as the Messiah. And you know, it's not recorded once in that whole interaction that he had in Samaria. What, what does not happen the entire time he's in Samaria. He works not one healing. He works not one miracle. He preaches the gospel and they believe in him. Not because of what the woman said, but because of what he said. And then he eases into Galilee. He comes home. And they're cheering because they want more signs and wonders. What a relevant example of our modern culture. Those who do not believe in God, like Brother Garrett was teaching us in Sunday school, those who do not believe in God, they want God to be proven by some kind of physical demonstration. So the people who don't believe in miracles want a miracle to prove that God exists. And the church is full of a bunch of practical atheists who think God has to do what they desire and work signs through them for him for Christianity to be real. And then we come to another important encounter that Jesus has with somebody. Verse 46 and 47. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. A man comes to Jesus in a much different way in this interaction, right? We've had... Several interactions that have been really awesome in the, in the past little bit. You know, we had Nicodemus who came believing that Jesus preached good things and then Jesus gave him the heart of the gospel 
that man must be born again to be saved. And we see a Samaritan woman who came, and she was definitely seeking something because Jesus provided her living water that changed her entire world, and she was converted, and not only was she converted, a whole village was converted. But this man was different. Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman heard the gospel preached and their lives were changed. The official, as he's described here, is hurting. And he has heard that there is some sort of miracle worker in town. He's heard that there's somebody who can do miracles. So that's why he comes. It's not about what Jesus is preaching. It's about what he can do for us. That's why he comes to Jesus. He doesn't seem to care who Jesus is. He just wants his son healed. Jesus answers the man in a way that may seem kind of mean to us, but it has a purpose. You know, we talked about here how he had come into his home in Galilee and they had welcomed him. So most of us, if we came into a place and we were cheered and Yelled for, we'd be in a pretty good mood, but this man comes and asks him to heal. And what does Jesus say? He says it in verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I want us to understand something. This isn't just Jesus answering this particular man in an angry way. Jesus is making a statement about the hardness of hearts and the numbness of minds in the culture he's in. He's speaking to all the Jewish scripture experts who know all of the prophecies of the Messiah, how he fulfills them, yet they don't see. They want to see the miracles. They can't see he's the Messiah because they just want the stuff. He's speaking to all the masses who will begin to follow him just to get the stuff, the people who are constantly want him to turn, turn, let's have more feasts. Come on, that, that, that bread and that fish was awesome. Let's have some more. He's speaking to them. Jesus himself says later that an adulterous generation seeks after a sign. So a, a, a group of people that seeks after another God Seeks after the sign. Let's get back to the man, though. All he knows is that his son is sick. And this man recently came to town and turned water into wine, which was a great miracle that they had never seen before. So maybe, just maybe, he can heal his son. Now, let's not be tempted to be like this, like the Pharisee who looked down on the sinner in this case and, and look at this sign seeker and, and point our fingers and be angry at him. Say, well, you're missing the whole point, dude. Official, you're, you're missing the whole point. Jesus is the Messiah and you just want him to heal your son. Well, listen, we shouldn't look down on this man for a very specific reason. If we were in his position we would be doing the exact same thing. If all things were the same and our son or daughter was sick and this miracle worker had come to town, 
we would probably try. We'd probably be doing the same thing this man was doing. Let's look at verse 49. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. This man is pleading for the life of his son. And don't think that Jesus doesn't see this man's hurt and care for him, okay? We may sometimes see Jesus as this aloof figure, probably because of the way he's portrayed and the way he's misrepresented as how we think of him, but I think of Jesus as somebody who truly cares for everybody he encounters and he gives them the gospel and that's the proof that he cares because he's trying to show them who he is. Jesus speaks to this man in verse 50. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And I don't think, <clears throat> and R.C. Sproul pointed this out in his commentary, I don't think that Jesus is saying, Fine, get out of my way. I've got to keep going. Okay, he's healed. Whatever. I don't think Jesus answered him like that. I think he was telling him, Okay, he's healed. You can go home to him. I just can't come with you right now. Why? Because Jesus was on his father's purpose. He knew exactly every step he was supposed to take. And he couldn't come with him. But his son, he said he's healed. Jesus gave this man his word. He spoke to him and said, your son's healed. Go home to him. And there must have been something in the way that he said it because the man, as it says here, believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him. It wasn't like recently when I called Capital One three times in two days because I had sent them a pretty large check to pay off our car note and I was making sure they got it. And even though they told me, yeah, we got it, I made sure by three calls in two days that they got it. Until I saw it go off of my account, I kept calling. This man didn't do that. Jesus said, he's healed. And what did the man do? Okay. He turned around, he walked back, and he believed what Jesus had said. This man believed the promise that he was given by Jesus. Let's read verses 51 and 52. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. He's on his way home, and this man is greeted with some awesome news. His son was recovering, and he was going to live. And how did he react? Not like me or you would have. We probably would have bursted out in joy, maybe dropped our knees in tears knowing that our son or daughter was going to live. He didn't react like that. He reacted kind of peculiarly if you're thinking about what's happening in the situation. He asked a question. When? What time of day did that happen? When did it happen? And it was as if 
the fact that his son was going to live was no longer the issue for him. Because he believed what Jesus said. He said he was going to live, so I believe he's going to live. It's as if he wanted the evidence of when it took place to solve something else in his own mind, something that was in his heart, maybe a conviction that he was wrestling with all the way home. He found out that it was exactly what Jesus had said. It was no longer an issue for him whether his pain would end. That was not the point in the forefront of his mind anymore. He was wondering if this man was more than just a miracle worker. Because a miracle worker would have needed to come and do some kind of fancy thing to heal him. And he just said, your son's going to be fine. He's healed. It brings us to the most important point of the text. The key verse of this entire interaction is verse 53. Verse 53 says, The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. Jesus gave the man his word and it happened exactly as he had said, exactly when he had said. Let's look at the result of what happens because of that. He believed in Christ and so did the rest of his household. That's what that word believed meant. It didn't just mean that so he believed that he was going to be healed because he had already believed that. We know he believed that. He began to believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And it wasn't even because of just the healing itself. It was because of the word of Christ that he had been told. What what Jesus had said to him, he will live. You can go home. (coughs) So he knew because of that, because of his interaction with Christ, he knew that this had to be the Messiah. And because of that, his whole household was converted. So he became a family shepherd to his home and his kids, his wife, his servants. Everybody was converted because of it. There's a theme in that, right? Seems like every time Jesus is revealed as Messiah, the person he's revealed as Messiah to, can't help but tell everybody else about him. Isn't that, isn't that an interesting, interesting quality of Christ? Let's read verse 54 because, make no mistake, this verse is important. Verse 54 says, This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. John is telling us this is the second sign. What was the first? Water to wine. What's happened in between that? Nicodemus' heart has been changed. The Samaritan woman's been changed. A whole town in Samaria has been changed. And not one miracle worked in that town. The first four chapters of John are full of conversions and awesome life-changing events for people 
and even for a whole village, as we saw, yet there have only been two miracles. There are whole sects of Christianity that believe that miracle signs and wonders are the only way to change lives. They believe it's the only way to get people saved is to work signs, wonders, and miracles. As we can see with our friend who lengthens people's legs, that's how he shares the gospel. The gospel's not involved in that situation. It's parlor tricks. Here we see the first four chapters of, of this gospel as proof that Jesus wasn't going around just working a bunch of miracles. He's not a, just a miracle worker. Does he do miracles? Yes, he does miracles. He did great miracles. But he did them for one purpose. He did them to confirm his authority as God the Son, having authority over creation, to fix things in creation as he saw fit. As they were in the will of God. He came with the purpose, though, of preaching the gospel. In Mark, we see the very first thing he did is start preaching the kingdom, repent, and believe in the gospel. That's what he did. But let's look at John 18, 37, because it points to the fact of why he's here. John 18, 37, he's being interrogated by Pilate. Pilate said to him, so are you a, a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Let's see what it says next. Does it say to work a bunch of awesome miracles, to lengthen legs, to, to make people not have a cough anymore, to heal back pain? Is that what it said? No. He said, I have come to this world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He was here to preach the word and change hearts and lives through the word of God because he was God and therefore anything he said was the word of God. All the miracles have their place but it's about what he said. So at this point, let's explore what I feel is the overall theme of this text. And it's this. Jesus' word is just as strong as his physical presence. Jesus' word is just as strong as his physical, pre his physical presence. Miracles do have a place in his ministry. And it's, ex it's clearly explained by John in another text that we will exposit later. But let me read you this text. We'll exposit it in probably a few months. But here's what he said in John 20, verse 31, 30 through 31. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So he did a lot of different things. Now these signs are, are miracles and, 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 and things that he did. He did it in the presence of the disciples, but they're not written in this book. And now John tells you why. But these that are written... But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why are the miracles that are recorded recorded? 
Anything that's recorded in here is for one purpose, to point to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, He is the Son of God, and that you need to believe in Him, trust in Him, because that is the only way that you shall live. You are walking as dead men without Christ. That is why miracles happened. That is why miracles were done. It wasn't to give us abundant life, as we hear in many other sermons. No, the miracles that were done in this book were done in God's will to show the fact that Jesus was God. It doesn't need to be signs and wonders that we seek. Because they are not what saves us. That's the stuff. We don't need the stuff. We need the Savior. We need to seek the Savior. To know Him. To know Him better is the greatest purpose of our lives. To know Him. Who He is. We believe, listen clearly, we do believe that God can heal and He can work a miracle if He chooses to. Why? Because He is God and God can do whatever God wants to do. But we don't seek after those things over seeking to grow in the knowledge of our Savior. We don't seek after the miracle. We don't seek after the prosperity in order to, in order to, to, to be happy and joyful in this life. Our great joy in life is the knowledge of the Savior that we have revealed in the Word of God that we can see daily, that we can renew our mind to always, constantly. We can have our minds renewed to the Word of God. And what does that point to? What does the Holy Spirit point us to? It points us to the Word, which points us to the Savior. You see, we, much like this official, we must believe the Word of Jesus Christ. We must believe what He says. Because here's the thing, and we've talked about this a lot recently because many of us have been going through things and, and there's, been a, there's been loss in this building, there's been struggle in this building, there's been uh, suffering in this building for some. Physical, mental, emotional. We must seek after Christ and not after prosperity and healing and miracles. Because if our knowledge of who He is is based on whether we have a bunch of money and whether we feel good all the time and everything's going our way, if that's how we base our knowledge of Christ, what happens when those things are not present? If He's good when we're getting all the stuff we want and we're having the money, what about when we're not? <clears throat> is He good? I see here contained within this word that there's times of suffering, there's times of famine, there's times of, of, of persecution. The early church was constantly being killed, yet we see one major theme throughout it. God is redeeming His people, and Jesus Christ is, is the one who did the work to redeem. And God is good.
But what if it doesn't feel good? What if I don't get all I want in this life? You aren't promised to get all you want in this life. You are promised, much like Brother Jesse read this morning, that the sufferings of this world will pale in comparison to the great promise that we have that one day the perishable will go away and we will put on the imperishable body glorified in Christ without sin, without pain, without suffering, without mental torment, without any of those things. One day we will be glorified. That's the Christian's great promise. We were never promised awesome things all the time in this life. In fact, Jesus said, in this life you will suffer. <laughs> Take heart, because I've overcome the world. These scriptures in this book are written down that we may believe in Christ. That's why we have them. Not to twist them to fit our agendas. We have these so we can know who Christ is better. This is his book. And I like how Michael Horton puts it of the White Horse Inn. We're not, this book isn't about us and Jesus plays a supporting role. This book is about Christ and he has accepted us into his, into his story. That we are part of his story. We are the redeemed. We are the elect. We are the ones that he has saved. So we're accepted into his story. It's not our life story and we get to let Jesus and, and God be supporting roles. No, this life is his to live and he lives through us if we are in Christ. We have taken on his righteousness and he has taken away our filthiness. These scriptures are written that we may believe in the real God of the Bible. God the Father, creator of all things. God of the universe for all eternity. God the Son, God of all things, God of all eternity, present in creation and incarnate in the body and the person of Jesus Christ, doing the work to redeem the people of, of this world and saving us from forever hell and damnation. God the Holy Spirit, not some force that gives us the chill bumps. God the Holy Spirit who lives in us, sanctifying us, pointing us back to Jesus, teaching us the Word, helping us daily to walk in this life in a way that pleases the Father. We read this Word to know Him and to trust that what He says is true just like the official did. Not some supernatural powers. How do we know that? Well, look at the example of the official. The, by the time the official had gotten close enough for a servant to meet him, he was no longer thinking about, oh, it's going to be an awesome miracle if my son, may, if he could just make it. He doesn't whoop and holler. He says, what time did it happen? Why? Because his mind has probably been wrestling with something else. And that is, a miracle worker could never do what he's what he's saying he could do, and I believe he's he said because see we don't know what else 
He said to the man, we don't know what else the man heard when he was in the presence of Christ, who is most likely preaching the gospel. The supernatural stuff wasn't what he was concerned about. What he was concerned about is what time did it happen because this is evidence that this man is the Messiah whom he said he is. How do we know that Jesus would say he was the Messiah? Because, you know, people are going to tell us Jesus never said he was God. Jesus never said he was the Messiah. Well, verse 25 of chapter 4 says, A woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he would tell us all things. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He did say he was the Messiah. He did say he was God. And he had evidence. Now, this man to back up what Jesus had said about himself. Because exactly when he said it was going to happen, it happened. No, no run-of-the-mill miracle worker could do that. This man's God. We believe in a God that has evidence, and the evidence is contained in the Word of God. And all our experiences will ever do for us is confirm what the Word of God has already said about who God is. This Word was written that we may believe, not in supernatural powers, not in prosperity and healing, that we may believe in the one and only Son of God who came to redeem the world. And His name is Jesus Christ, and He is the only way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way we will see God is through Him. We must repent and trust in Him for the salvation of our souls or we are without hope at all. That's what the Word of God is for. That's what this man's experience was written down for. That we may believe, just like this man who Jesus spoke to and said, your son will live. And he instantly knew, my son will live. And he began to walk back. And the evidence pointed to one thing. This is the Messiah. And what happened? He believed he was Messiah and his household believed he was the Messiah and they are one day going to possibly be somebody we meet when our bodies are glorified and we meet and we live together forever with them in eternity. Because this word is where our hope is found. Not in signs, wonders, and miracles and what Jesus has said. What he has said is what's important. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that we were able to read this experience of this official and see the fact that it's not anything about the miracle. It's not anything about any of the surrounding things. It is about one thing that he believed. He believed what Jesus said. And because you are a God not of blind faith, but of faith with evidence we see that the evidence not only converted him but it converted his entire household his his children his wife his servants God we are in awe of who Jesus is we're not seeking some fly by night miracle worker we are seeking after the knowledge of the son of God who in his in your divine providence came. He lived a perfect life. He died the death that needed to be died, taking our sin 
upon himself, enduring the punishment for that sin, and raising three days later, later to let us know that the sacrifice was accepted. And now when we hear the gospel preached, we will repent and trust in Christ. And God, we can never hear the gospel too much because it is the power of God unto salvation. And one day, the last day, with the trump of God and the voice of the archangel and with a shout, we will see Jesus. Whether we come out of the grave or whether we are alive and remain, we will see Jesus face to face, brand new, alive, with a brand new body. Father, we pray for those who do not know this truth. God, for those who struggle or fight against it. God, let this truth be a rock in their shoe that they may not let it go. They must know more. God, that you would convict their hearts, that you would regenerate their hearts, give, take out the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, give them saving faith that they may believe, they may repent and trust in Christ, believe what the gospel says. God, we honor you with our hearts and our minds and in worship, and we thank you for the saving power of Jesus Christ. And God, we call to those who need it, Repent, sinner. Trust in Christ. He is your only hope. God, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.